Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, good morning, John Pielli Pass Ball Show. Don't forget to check out JohnPielli.com right here on the MTR Radio Network. Another Saturday morning. Gonna be with you for the next two hours talking baseball. And I tell you, over the last couple months, I've been blessed with having a lot of very good guests, a lot of former major league players and well-known players in some cases on the program, and I've always, I'm always grateful to everybody that has the opportunity to give me a couple minutes and do an interview with me. I'm going to back off a little bit today. I still do have a couple interviews I'm going to play, including in the first hour with former Mets first baseman and current hitting coach for the Savannah Sand Nets, Val Pascucci. And in the second hour, I'll be talking to former White Sox left-hand pitcher Jim Parquet and former Minnesota Twins catcher for the better part of the 80s, Tim Lautner. But I'm going to start off, we're going to get into, like we normally do, the conventional baseball, historical baseball. A couple things I'm going to hit up on. We're going to talk about the first black pitcher in Major League Baseball history. We're going to talk about another one of the more underrated shortstops of the 1950s, as well as probably the most racist player on the 1947 Brooklyn Dodgers team. And I'm going to give you a hint, it's not Dixie Walker. But I'm also going to talk a little bit about who I think in Major League Baseball has the best bullpen in the entire league. And we know one team that it's not. So this allows me to promptly segue into my first topic today. And that is, what do you do with the New York Mets bullpen? This is a team that has gotten very good starting pitching over the first month plus of the season. And if you want to talk about one positive, if you're a fan of this team, it's that day in and day out, you're getting a solid start from everybody that goes out there, whether it's John Neese, whether it's Dylan G, whether it's Zach Wheeler, Henry Mejia, Bartolo Colon, a bad start here and there, notwithstanding the Mets starting pitching has been fantastic this season. Unfortunately, on several occasions, 
And this is happening to the Mets more often than it is to a lot of teams in Major League Baseball. They either get a lead or have a tie game late, and you give the ball to the bullpen, and you could guarantee the Mets will find a way to lose the game. So we're at this point now in the season. We're only about a little more than a month in. And we talk about a bullpen in New York, in Queens, that wasn't necessarily assembled with the expectations to be one of the top bullpens in all of Major League Baseball. You could talk about the offseason where guys, free agents like LaTroy Hawkins, Scott Atchison, and David Ardsma all left as free agents. And while none of those names are on the sexy side in regards to having a top reliever in Major League Baseball, the bottom line is the Mets didn't even replace those guys with anything standard enough to say that they're on the same level. And out in the retail world, you know you get what you pay for. And the quality that you've seen out of the Mets bullpen is pretty much what you would expect if you shopped at a flea market. And it's unfortunate because I just mentioned, and it's obviously common knowledge, that the Mets starting pitchers day in and day out have been given solid performances and keeping the Mets in these ball games, which essentially have been going to waste. Now, if you want to talk about the guys that are assembled, remember it started out with Bobby Parnell on opening day. He pitched a one game. He had a Tommy John surgery after he's done for the season. Yes, that was a loss that the Mets could not foresee coming. A guy like John Lennon, who was never really meant to be a reliever, was like a fish out of water, and he's now down in the minor leagues. Now you still have the other five guys that you started the season with, and that's Scott Rice, Jerry's Familia, Gonzalez Hermen, Carlos Torres, Jose Valverde, and of course, Kyle Farnsworth, who was called up by the Mets after Parnell went on the disabled list. For the most part, these guys are not really getting the job done. Rice has been up and down. Familia is a guy you can't really trust to put in a big spot. Valverde has not been good, has been a little better lately, but is still not a guy you trust. Kyle Farnsworth can get the job done one day and look terrible the next day. Really, the only pitcher that has stood out this year has been Carlos Torres, who the Mets may get a little bit of bang for their buck. He's pitched very well. And, of course, Daisuke Matsuzaka, who got off to a really good start in spite of the one bad game, has been pitching well in the bullpen. The bottom line is if the Mets are going to have any sort of impact in regards to bringing in relievers and being able to shut the opposition down, particularly in division, they're going to have to make some changes in some way, shape, or form. Now, you want to talk about free agents that are still out there. You want to talk about a Heath Bell, who was just released, a Kevin Gregg, who's still out there, a Ryan Madsen, who's recovering from uh, being out of baseball for two, the past two seasons. You could talk about that, but I don't think the Mets are going to pony up even a minor league contract offer to any one of those players. The talk has always been, and if you are if you follow the New York Mets, you know about the young pitching that they have down in their farm system. And everybody's talking about Noah Syndergaard making his impact when he comes up to the major leagues, whether it's June, July, or August. And you also know about the arms that they have there with guys like Rafael Montero and Jacob deGrom. Can any of these pitchers help the Mets in their bullpen right now? And my short answer to that question is yes. I would like to see Montero and or DeGrom up in this Mets bullpen as soon as possible. One thing that I do not want to see, and let's be honest, not just with Mets fans, but on a national level, MLB Network, you know, MLB Network Radio, you've heard 
people say that the Mets' best reliever right now or best option to be a closer is a guy that's in their starting rotation in Henry Mejia. And the reason that I'm not going crazy over putting Henry Mejia in the bullpen is because the Mets made a decision this spring training that Henry Mejia was worthy of being the fifth starter in the Mets' rotation. The Mets didn't have to do that. Dice K. Matsuzaka had a very good spring training, was in a position where he could have very well been the Mets' fifth starter. And if the Mets wanted to make Henry Mejia into a reliever, they should have done it then. To wait after seven or eight starts and decide to put Mejia in the pen is going to be terrible for the psyche of the Mets' young right-hand pitcher. Now, you could say, hey, if you talk it up right and you tell him that he's going to have a chance to pitch in significant games and save the bullpen and help the bullpen, that maybe he buys into it, and maybe he does. But any young pitcher that has busted their ass to make a major league rotation, especially considering what Henry Mejia has gone through over the past couple seasons with his Tommy John surgery and the bone chips being removed last year at the end of the season after he was emerging as a starter in the Mets rotation. It will be taken as a devastating blow to Henry Mejia. And you know, for those of you out there that say, hey, who cares? It's just the guy's feelings. He'll do the job that he's told to do. I'm telling you, the mental impact of certain moves that happen with players, particularly a starting pitcher that's not pitching bad and gets sent to the bullpen, could have a more devastating effect on the franchise going forward. And one thing that was suggested is possibly maybe the Mets go out there and they recall or call up Rafael Montero, put him in a rotation, and take Henry Mejia out and put him in the bullpen. While that may sound okay, I'll tell you why it doesn't make any sense. Rafael Montero has been pitching very well in AAA Las Vegas. He looks like, to this point, the most major league ready pitcher that they have down there. And you could say even starting pitcher. So let's say you make that decision. You take Rafael Montero out of AAA, you put him in a rotation, and you put Henry Mejia in the bullpen. Maybe maybe everything works. Maybe Montero gives you six solid innings just about every time out, and Mejia emerges into that closer candidate type of job. But maybe it doesn't. Maybe Mejia struggles a little bit. Or maybe Montero struggles in his first couple starts. And maybe Mejia is thinking, hey, I, maybe I should be the guy in that position. And Montero maybe presses a little more over his next three, four starts. And ends up getting to a point where the Mets have to send him back to AAA. While normally that wouldn't be a problem with a young pitcher, now you're stuck trying to figure out what you do with that fifth starter spot again. Do you take Daisuke Matsuzaka, assuming he's still with the team, and put him in that fifth starter spot? I don't think you're setting yourself up for success. Or do you go to Henry Mejia, a guy who was your opening day fifth starter, put to the bullpen because you said you needed help in the bullpen, and you move him back into the rotation where all of a sudden he is trying to prove something and he is a major league starter and not a reliever. It's creating a scenario, in my opinion, that doesn't need to be uh, you know, gone through. Montero, if you want to bring him up, and I understand he doesn't have an overpowering fastball, but I think you bring him up and you put him in a bullpen. Jacob deGrom, I think you bring him up and you put him in a bullpen. And maybe you make a couple corresponding roster moves, whether it's saying goodbye to Jose Valverde or Kyle Farnsworth or Dice K or sending Jerry's Familia down, which I've suggested on a number of occasions before. You get the two young guys up here with the hopes that you're going to give this bullpen the spark that it needs. 
And if it doesn't work out, what do you do? You send them back to the minors and you say that they weren't going to be relievers anyway. But you're taking that chance that one or both of them could provide a presence in a bullpen that they lack right now. And the Mets aren't going to sign a free agent. The Mets are not going to make a trade. The only way they're going to fix this situation is from within. And I think that the best thing to do is bring these two young guys up, put them in the bullpen, cut a couple guys and move on and see if they could salvage something. Because the starting rotation, the guys in the Mets starting rotation have busted their asses and have put themselves in a situation where they keep the Mets in just about every game. And how many times are they going to leave after six or seven innings and watch a lead or a tie game go in the other team's direction and not be frustrated. And it's not just a frustration with the pitchers. It's not just a frustration with the manager. It's not even just a frustration with uh, Sandy Alderson. It's the whole front office, the ownership, and the organization as well. Moving on, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. And of course, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli as we keep the program interactive. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the team that I feel right now, based as of May 6th, has the best bullpen in Major League Baseball. And I'm not necessarily talking about the best bullpen in regards to arms or quality or, or the, to, the type of pitchers that strike a fear in the opposition. I'm talking strictly numbers. And you could talk all day about the teams that should have the best bullpens in all Major League Baseball. The Oakland Athletics, the Los Angeles Dodgers, the Tampa Bay Rays, the St. Louis Cardinals, the Boston Red Sox. And you can even talk about the Atlanta Braves, the Washington Nationals, and a team that I've said all along has a very good bullpen, and that's the Colorado Rockies. None of those teams are the ones that I'm talking about right now. You know what team that is? It's a team that happened to trade a top lefty pitcher in a pennant race last year, and a team that also traded their top setup man uh, for an, a fourth outfielder, essentially, in the offseason. And that team is the San Diego Padres. If you look at the quality of innings that they're getting out of relief, if you want to talk about a team that I just mentioned before, the New York Mets, if they had the numbers of the relievers that the San Diego Padres had, uh, they, they might win, have won 20 games so far. They might be 8, 9, 10 games over 500. And what, what I think is interesting, you're looking at a team in San Diego that last year sent lefty specialist Joe Thatcher to the Arizona Diamondbacks to get Ian Kennedy. Now, Ian Kennedy has helped out their starting rotation, and obviously, if you look at their starters, guys like Tyson Ross and Andrew Kashner kind of are leading the rotation in a different direction than it was last year. They also traded Luke Gregerson to the Oakland Athletics for Seth Smith. The performance from their closer, Houston Street, was good, but not lights out. Right-hand pitcher Dale Thayer and right-hander Nick Vincent were good, but not spectacular. And if you remember, two years ago, Thayer was cast away by the New York Mets. They did add free agent right-hand pitcher Joaquin Benoit from the Detroit Tigers and traded for left-hand pitcher Alex Torres from the Rays. Here's the early season results as of 5-5-2014. Street, 1-0, .69 ERA, 10 saves, 13 innings pitched, 15 Ks. Benoit, 0-0, ERA, 14 games, 13 and two-thirds innings pitched, 12 Ks. Thayer, 2-0, 0.56 ERA, 17 games, 16 innings pitched, 17 Ks. Torres, 1-0, 0.69 ERA, 15 games, 
13 innings pitched, 12 Ks. Nick Vincent, 0 and 0, 2.03 ERA, 13 and a third innings, 12 Ks. Tim Stauffer, former starter, he's, he's made himself a narrow reliever, 1 and 0, 2.45 ERA, 14 and two thirds innings pitched, 14 Ks. Don Roche, 1 and 0, 281 ERA, 9 games, 16 innings pitched, and 7 Ks. And that's it. They don't have a single reliever with an ERA over 2.81. Their totals, they're 6-0, and 176 ERA, 11 saves, 102 innings, 93 Ks, 88 hits allowed, 25 walks. The most impressive thing that I see with this bullpen is the fact that they collectively have not lost a game yet. And you talk about how many teams, whether you're a good team, a bad team, a mediocre team, you've had your bullpen blow a couple games. And yes, there, there may have been a couple scenarios where there's been a guy on base that an inherited runner has been allowed to score that didn't count against the relief core. But you're looking at a 6-0 and record with 11 saves and a 1.76 ERA, which has been absolutely fantastic. Now you ask yourself this, can the San Diego Padres maintain this? Houston Street's been kind of an up-and-down pitcher. When he's been good, he's been great, but also goes through some funks where he struggles for a little while. But the depth that was added by bringing in Joaquin Benoit from the Tigers, I think can allow him to maybe get a day off here and there. And I think over time, you could expect both Street and Benoit to be solid. Torres, the left-hand pitcher, pitched very well for the Tampa Bay Rays last year into the playoffs is a guy that should be able to get left-hand hitters out and pitch to a relatively low ERA. What does that say about the other pitchers? Well, listen, Dale Thayer is sitting there right now with a .56 ERA. I, do I think Dale Thayer is that good of a relief pitcher? The answer is no, but I do think he's improved a lot from the last couple of years. And if he's a guy that's pitching in a seventh inning as opposed to the eighth inning, I think his value is certainly there. And you got guys like Stauffer, who I think can make a make a run to be a late-game reliever, either a 7th or an 8th inning pitcher. And I do think the Padres, very quietly, have some depth in his bullpen. And the, what does that mean? Well, listen, they have a lot of questions. Their starting rotation has gotten a little better. Offensively, uh, they have a lot of underachievers there, including guys like Carlos Quinton and Chase Headley. And guys that are still trying to find an identity to themselves. So offensively, they may struggle. And this is what's going to keep them behind some of the other teams in the National League West. But if they could get good starting pitching, like I like I said before, I really think they can. Uh, their bullpen is going to save them games. And it's unfortunate they do have a losing record right now. But I think over time, if their bullpen continues to pitch and get the job done as they have, they're going to start winning some ball games and making up some ground in the NL West. Once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show. Don't forget to check out JohnPielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. What we're going to do is take our first break of the program. On the other side, we're going to be joined by former Mets first baseman and Montreal Expos first baseman Val Pascucci, who is currently the hitting coach for the Savannah Sand Nats, the Mets' low-A club in the South Atlantic League. Um, I actually got a chance to talk to him in a visitor's dugout of First Energy Park in Lakewood as they played the Lakewood Blue Claws. So once again, John Pielli, Pass Ball Show. We'll be right back after this. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. 
When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. Savannah Sandmats, and with me is the hitting coach of the Savannah Sandmats, and that's Val Pascucci. Val, thanks for having a couple minutes. Yeah, no before I ask you a couple questions about your, your playing career, first talk a little bit about the transition from being a player into a coach, because this is something that's happened, you know, from last year you were playing, mm-hmm. and now you're a coach. Well, it just, uh, you know, it all started back actually a couple years ago with different guys in the Mets organization and the front office, and uh, it mentioned it as I was playing for the Mets still, saying, you know, I was down in line if, uh, when it got done, if I wanted to coach, to, to make sure I let them know, because they would love to have me back as a, as a coach. And, uh, and last year, it ended up working out that way, where, you know, different jobs were coming out, this and that, and uh, I stayed in contact with the Mets, and um, they told me that they had a full-season job that would be available, so I wanted to take it, and uh, they gave me time to make the decision, and uh, ended up here for the now, how difficult was the decision? Because this is something that you, know, you put your passion, your life into for so many years. Obviously, that day comes for everybody. But you know, talk a little bit about the decision to stop playing and become a coach. Well, well it was, you know, there was different teams. I went to a couple workouts and stuff. I actually went with the Japanese team, and uh, it was back in late November, and that's uh, about it. Triple A and that, that type thing, and uh, it, it, uh, 
big and I fan this year with the Mets because, you know, I played with them for so long and I knew all the front office staff and other coaches and, and uh, they actually were easy fans of the Nice, man. Uh, once again, John Pialli here with Kyle Pascucci. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about the beginning of your career because you, you were drafted pretty early by the Milwaukee Brewers. You made a decision to go to college over at Oklahoma. Yeah. How tough of a decision was that for you? Because, you know, you have a chance, you're drafted in the 11th round, uh, you're, you're going to get a chance to play ball professionally. Was that a difficult decision to go to school? Um, that, that part wasn't really that difficult, I think. You know, I, I had a good high school career and everything leading up to that. And you know, the Brewers, they, they talked about, they didn't know if they were the fourth round guy was going to be signing. They, uh, offered, you know, they said if that didn't happen, there might be more money and stuff like that later on in the rounds to get to me. And the way it worked out, it was kind of all going to happen. And, uh, you know, I was looking good going to Oklahoma. It was a good school. I knew their baseball history. And, uh, it didn't work out dollars-wise, but uh, you know I was thinking about going to school anyway, and uh, so I ended up doing kind of easy decision. I actually had a couple guys from Southern California that were going out to Oklahoma that I played against and with, and uh, we all kind of went out there together. So that made it uh, easy at Oklahoma, and we all showed up there on campus. And, you know, I knew you know, some friendly faces when we were there. Yeah, I mean, obviously Oklahoma has a very good history, so you end up you know not doing something you kind of felt comfortable doing. Yeah. Now going up through, you know, after after you're drafted and you start playing ball professionally, was there one person, whether it was a player or a coach, that was the most of an influence on you in a positive way, like somebody that kind of showed you the ropes or that made you maybe into a little bit of a better player? Um, well, I think you know, my first manager in the short season was Montreal. Was Tony Barbone. He was uh, he was manager and he, he was a college manager before that head coach and and. Uh, he just kind of showed, you know, kept discipline, you know, be on time, do all that stuff that you always hear through baseball. And uh, he was one of the guys that kind of influenced me, you know, playing well. And, and uh, he always, you know, basically a positive thing to say. He would correct you when he saw something was wrong. And, and you know, that's why I should, you know, I think it should be when guys, you know, high draft picks or whatever it might be go out there and they're feeling comfortable with uh, they get in the pro ball and give them a short season or a long season and uh, you know there's something you're supposed to handle yourself and, and he was good about that with some of the younger guys and myself as well and it's just kind of uh, I just you know set a little base I guess kind of how I wanted to take my career and uh, he was the first manager so I say he was one of the guys that Influenced me. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, as you, as you go forward, you make your major league debut with the uh, Expos in 2004. Uh, tell us a little bit about the excitement of that, you know, your first atmosphere of the major league baseball game. Yeah, it was good. I was, uh, I was actually getting ready to go on the road. I was up in Edmonton, you know, triple A with the Expos there, and uh, I was telling the manager, just that, my family, we were supposed to be going to Sacramento and all this stuff, and, and you know, I told him he was going there, and he basically said, when he called me in, he's like, well, tell your family to go down to San Diego instead of Sacramento, drive south instead of north, and uh, meet in San Diego, we're going to Big League, so, I mean, obviously, that was exciting, so, you know, playing, we're looking forward to that call, and when you get it, uh, you know, I was definitely excited, and they got to do it in San Diego, or close to the, my house in Southern California, and I had probably about 30, 35 tickets the first night in San Diego, and then the the second uh, series was at Dodger Stadium where I got my first hit and I probably had about 50 tickets there. Back when back when you can do that with the tickets and, yeah. and have that stuff. But, uh, so that was great. You got to do it in front of a lot of friends and family. And, and uh, obviously the first thing we called was definitely exciting. Yeah, no question. Once again, John Pialli here with Al Pascucci. Now, the next couple of years, you're, you're down in AAA just hitting home runs like there's no tomorrow. You don't get a call up to the big league either season. Yeah. Obviously, it had to be something that's a little frustrating to you. Was it something that 
you look back on and now say, hey, maybe uh, you know, at least a little bit of a September call-up one of those years? Uh, I mean, yeah, you know, you talk about guys getting rewarded for having good years. It's uh, kind of something you look forward to, especially when you're, you know, you have some high offensive categories throughout the throughout the league. Uh, there's a couple times, like you said, I didn't get the call-up, and you know, when you see other guys, different organizations that don't have the numbers you did during the season, but they're in the right spot at the right time, I guess, and. Um, you know, it, it's, it makes a difference when teams are in the playoff run and out of it. You know, these guys they fall up and uh, and some of that plays a factor. So that factored in. And, you know, obviously I would love to get the call up, but especially you know, pitch hitting or whatever it is, going there and be ready to hit um, and help the team out. But uh, like I said, it didn't happen, and there's not much you can do about that. Keep it up the number, and you know, hopefully somebody will take notice, notice, and, and give you a shot when, when the call is there. I have a question. Two more questions. You, you, you know, your performance over those two seasons probably led to your opportunity to play in Japan to yeah. achieve a lot of the Marines. Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience playing overseas, because that's probably something that. You know, not everybody really gets to go through, and yeah. I'm sure a lot of people listening, you know, probably want to know what is what's the biggest difference in the culture and the experience of yeah. playing in Japan. Um, it's just, uh, you know, when I first went over there, I got basically got in contact with Bobby Valentine. I mean, he was the manager over there for Chiba Love Day, and uh, basically kind of said the same thing almost. He was like, you know, you've been putting up big numbers with Montreal, and, and uh, you know, I don't know why they haven't given you more of a shot, but I would love to, you know, bring you over here and give you a shot with us, and uh, just kind of. Worked out. I went and met him in New York, and he was filling me in uh, about these uh, the culture type stuff and stuff to expect. And, and went over there and just said it was great. I mean, the fans are, you know, really passionate about the game. Almost every game was sold out there. Every game was on TV. We only had the 12 teams, so the fans just uh, get behind their teams and the loyal fans. When we go on the road and have five, six thousand of our own fans, everybody wearing our road uniform, you know, with all their chanting and everything else uh, that they do there. So that, that part is great. I mean, and uh, it didn't matter what part of the game. You could be losing, you know, 10 to 1 in the ninth inning, and those guys are still in a playoff atmosphere type thing. They're cheering and screaming like, uh, you know, like you still have a shot. So that part of the player is always uh, is nice. You know, you don't go and give up on a batch or anything like that. It was just get through it. Uh, we got the you know, excitement in the stadium all the time and, and give you something to play for. Yeah, no question. And, uh, you know, to finish it off here, obviously, as a coach right here, you get a chance to work with a lot of young kids, uh, you know, obviously have that same passion that you had when you were younger. Is there is there a, a, a player on on this the Savannah team that reminds you most of yourself? Um, I'll say, you know, maybe a couple guys. Uh, Sable and King are both kind of, you know, bigger, stronger guys and, and in the middle of the lineup, and, uh, and they've been real good about being patient at the plate and you know, trying to get their pitch to hit, and uh, they've both been, you know, grabbing in runs and doing that type of thing, you know, when they get their pitch. So to see those guys, uh, you know, showing like discipline like I did and, and have a little power to, you know, do some damage when they got their pitch, uh, I would say those two guys are probably, probably similar in this lineup. Well, I appreciate you giving me the time. Best of luck to you. All right, appreciate it. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Val Pascucci, and of course I wish him well as he's transitioned from being a, a pretty much a minor league player. Obviously the dreams of getting back in the major leagues, which he did in 2004 with the Montreal Expos and the 2011 season with the New York Mets. Now he's a coach, he's a hitting instructor, and you can tell that you know he, he enjoys what he's doing, man. As you get to see him over over the weekend, he really. Uh, it really looked like he had an impact on what was going on and a lot of the young players that are down there. And if you're a Mets fan, guys like Dominic Smith, Stefan Sable, 
uh, Ryan McNeil, uh, Gavin Sacchini. They're all currently players that are playing for the Savannah Sand Nats, and along with manager Luis Rojas, they have uh, Valentino Pascucci, the former first baseman and power hitter, and obviously... Uh, one th a couple of things that stand out, and if you heard during the interview, he was a tremendous power hitter, put up a lot of good numbers in AAA for the most part of his career, and really only got two opportunities. And, you know, a couple times he probably should have gotten another major league shot. And, you know, now he transitions to his career as a hitting coach, and obviously I wish him the best. Uh, moving on, we're going to get into a little bit of history right now, and a couple of things I did want to touch on. And both of them have to do with the Brooklyn Dodgers of the late 1940s. And of course, Jackie Robinson Day, if you heard, you know, I talked a little bit about um, the history of April 15th and the fact that, um, you know, Hiram Bithorn was the first Puerto Rican player to play in Major League history on April 15th, 1942. And of course, Jackie Robinson, the impact that he had five years later in 1947. But, you know, when a question is posed, of who the first African-American baseball player was in the history. Most know the name of the player in the year that it was. When the same question is asked about the first African-American player in the American League, many know that was Larry Doby. But many would be hard-pressed to know the name of the first African-American pitcher in the history of Major League Baseball. Some would think it's Satchel Paige. Others may think it's Don Newcomb, who came up with the Dodgers in 1948. It's neither. The first black pitcher is actually Dan Bankhead, who made his major league debut for the Brooklyn Dodgers on August 26, 1947, while his would-be 94th birthday would have been on May 3rd. He passed away in 1976 on May 2nd, a day short of what would have been his 56th birthday. He was considered the next Satchel Page as he came up through the Negro Leagues. He dominated, pitching for the Birmingham Barons and the Memphis Red Sox from 1940 to 1947. He was then signed by Branch Rickey of, of course, the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Unfortunately, his MLB stats do not do the man justice. Though he hit a home run in his first major league at bat, a guy who was known as a very good hitter even down in the Negro Leagues, he gave up eight runs in 10 innings pitched over four games of relief for the Dodgers in 1947. Um, after two seasons in the minors, he was back with the big club in 1950. He went 9-4, but pitched to a pretty high ERA of 550 with three saves in 41 games, 12 as a starter. In 129 innings pitched, he walked 88 batters and struck out 98 batters, one thing that plagued Bankhead what was a little bit of a control issue that he had. He walked as many as 200 batters in a season and several seasons, even in the Negro Leagues, where he struck out many more batters than would be acceptable to have on base. Now, he had the ability. He had the blazing fastball. He had the ability to pitch himself out of jams. But uh, any pitcher that lives too much with a lot of guys on base, especially via the walk, is setting themselves up for a, for a little bit of a disaster. Now, 1951, he got into just seven games, made one start. He pitched to a 15.43 ERA, and he did not pitch in the major leagues again. Though the stats are incomplete looking at the ones in the Negro Leagues, he was at the top of his game in the Negro Leagues. He went about 15-4, 2.56 ERA, unofficially in 18 starts, 10 complete games, and three shutouts. Now, let's understand. I understand 
the stats are, are always going to be incomplete when, it look, when you look at the games in the Negro Leagues and all the different leagues that there were. But you got to understand, as good as they've been, and I think Major League Baseball and all the historians and the researchers and the people from Sabre have done a fantastic job to get as much data about the Negro Leagues as possible. But you got to understand that there's no way to dictate exactly how many games the stats were not collected for, how many games just existed, and the only people that know what happened on the field that day were the players on the field and the fans that were there that watched the game. There was nobody keeping records for a lot of it. So it's unfortunate that you got a guy like Dan Bankhead who you could hear all the stories and all the positive stories about how good and dominant of a pitcher he was, but yet there's not a ton of stats to prove how good he really was. But, uh, you know, if you look at his two years in the minors, uh, he spent some time, like I mentioned before, in 1948 and 1949, um, he was as dominant as ever. He was 24 and 6, 253 ERA in 1948, and 20 and 6, a 376 ERA in 1949, throwing well over 200 innings both seasons. He did not have the command that Page had, of course, like I mentioned before, and all those walks did hold him back. After pitching in the minors for Brooklyn farm teams for the rest of 51 and 52, after the major league experience I told you about, he went to Mexico where he pitched and played the outfield on and off through the year of 1966. It was great to see a lot of great African-American players get the respect they, they deserve. I really do love hearing stories about guys like Rube Foster and Buck O'Neill, Ray Dandridge, Cool Papa Bell, and others. However, I wonder why few talk about the importance of the first African-American pitcher in Major League Baseball history. Bankhead paved the way, just like Jackie Robinson did for all the hitters. Bankhead paved the way for guys like Newcomb, Mudcat Grant, Ferguson Jenkins, and others, but does not get the respect that he deserves. Um, I agree that Jackie Robinson is in a league of his own for what he went through and the fact that he was the first. More pitchers should give a tip of the cap to Dan Bankhead, without whom may never have made it to the majors. Now, you could say that Jackie Robinson paved the way for all African-American players to have the opportunity to play in the major leagues. But I'm sure Dan Bankhead, when he made his major league debut, probably went through a lot of the same things, not only the nerves, but obviously the uh, mental and physical abuse that he probably took from fans and people around him that did not want to see him succeed. But he did it, so many others down the road were able to do it. And perhaps carrying that burden was the reason that he did not sustain much Major League success. Whether that's true or not, Dan Bankhead deserves more respect for what he represents to the game of baseball. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out johnpielli.com for all my latest articles on Bases Empty blog. And tweet at me to keep the program interactive at John underscore Pielli. Moving forward, whether you're a baseball historian like myself, or maybe you got a chance to catch the movie 42, depicting the life and experience of Jackie Robinson himself, uh, you know that there was a backlash from players on the Brooklyn Dodgers, not only in 1947, but in 1946, when Robinson was to report to AAA Montreal and play with the white players. While star center fielder Dixie Walker takes all of the blame, 
just about all of it, and I think a lot of it's deserved. Uh, it needs to be noted that other players on both the Dodgers as well as most other teams were not in favor of an African-American player playing with the lighter-skinned ballplayers. Now, imagine if a statement like that was made nowadays. We all saw the recent fallout from the statements made by Los Angeles Clippers owner Donald Sterling and the truth that society has changed for the better in representing equal rights for all. While it does not always work out that way, the consensus is that those who make racist comments and engage in racist actions are the ones who are now in a minority. The reaction of all races and credences to Sterling, as well as Don Imus's statements years ago about the Rutgers women's basketball program, are proof that we have certainly come a long way to the treatment of racist statements since the 1940s and obviously later through the 60s. Some may not feel we have come far enough. Their opinion is on a record, and they have the right to feel that way. A conclusion can be made that the way most were treated back then simply could not have happened. And while that is not true, it did happen, the past obviously cannot be rewritten. There is no explanation that can be made that can justify the treatment of African Americans, whether they're athletes or not athletes at that time. Absolutely none. In 1947, four Brooklyn Dodgers players started a petition stating that they would refuse to play with a black ball player. Walker takes all the headlines, but Bobby Bragan, Carl Ferrillo, and Kirby Higby were equally adamant in their views about not wanting to play with an African-American ball player. In fact, it was the names of those four players that actually started to petition to keep Rap Robinson from being on the team or keep the other players from having to play with Robinson. Branch Rickey made it clear that Jackie Robinson would be playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947, and any player who refused to play with an African-American player would be traded. Ferrillo quickly changed his mind, and after it was made clear how serious Rickey was, both Bragan and Walker eventually drew their protest. But right-hand pitcher Kirby Higby did not. Higby was from South Carolina and defined what a racist white man was. He would brag about how strong his arm was and would be the first to say that he built his arm strength by throwing rocks at blacks. He did say that the blacks would throw rocks back at him, which was obviously justifiable. Yet, this never gets brought up. In fact, when Higby said he would not change his views, he was the one that was traded by Ricky to the Pittsburgh Pirates with three other players in exchange for infielder Al Gianfrido. Now, one of the players that was traded with Higby was future Major League manager Gene Mock. Now, there was no proof that Mock or either of the other two players that were involved in a deal to get Gianfrido had an issue playing with Jackie Robinson. While Higby obviously shared the views and represented what it was like to be that racist white ball player that would refuse to play with the black ball player. Dixie Walker also shared the same views. He was clearly a racist as well. Higby is not remembered in the same sense as Dixie Walker was, whether it's portrayed in a movie 42 or if it's told by a lot of baseball historians. Dixie Walker was the guy who seemed to stand up the most and have the most problem with Jackie Robinson playing on the same field. Now, that being said, 
it doesn't mean or doesn't take any light away from how much of a problem Kirby Higby had with it as well. The fact that Kirby Higby would rather take a trade than play with a black ball player, in my opinion, is worse than what Dixie Walker said or did. Similar to Walker, Higby had some success early on in his career. After starting off with the Chicago Cubs and playing for the Philadelphia Phillies, he was traded to the Brooklyn Dodgers prior to the 1941 season. Despite having a losing record and never winning more than 14 games a season, Higby took off, winning a career-high 22 games for a Dodgers team that won the NL pennant. He had the best success of his career in Brooklyn, winning 70 games and pitching to a 329 ERA and having a 648 winning percentage in his four-plus seasons with the Dodgers. Over his 12-year MLB career, Higby won 118 games and had a 369 ERA and pitched to just a 539 winning percentage. In fact, his record with the Cubs, Phillies, Pirates, and Giants was 48-63. and 63. His time in Brooklyn included missing two full seasons to service in the U.S. Army, like most other players did in that time. You could say that Higby was a good pitcher. His fastball was compared to that of Bob Feller in the late 1930s and early 1940s. But even the fact that he found religion later in his life does not excuse him for being the way he was. Perhaps his parents are the ones who taught him his values, but it still does not make it right. Kirby Higby deserves to be a poster child for racism in Major League Baseball in 1947. Surely others deserve it as well, mainly Walker and Phillies player manager Ben Chapman, who was also portrayed in the movie 42 as the guy that was making the racist comments and the real nasty remarks from the Phillies dugout. Chapman would later say that that was his form of bench jockeying and was not defining the words in, in his, as negatively or as hateful as they ended up coming out. Obviously, it's still no excuse. According to today's standards, and any human being standards of the 1940s. It, that is not and should never have been acceptable. The greatest sign that society has done its job fighting racism is the fact that you will be pressed to find a person who openly agrees with Donald Sterling's views. And if he does, you know what? He's probably afraid to say it because he'll likely be standing alone. And you know how much that is different than what the views would have been in the 1940s. Maybe there was a group or scattered white people, and in baseball, obviously we're talking about ball players, that may not have had an issue with other races, credences, or religions, but may have had a fear within themselves of speaking out for what they felt was right because of what the backlash would have been back then which honestly is exactly 180 degrees to what you're seeing right now because you probably do, and I know you do in some cases, have examples of racist people, and whether it's sports, not in sports. But you know what? They probably keep it to themselves because of a fear of what the general public's view is. And it's something that's changed over time and has certainly changed for the better. And if you look at some of the stuff that happened in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, it, it's kind of nauseating to think how people were treated back then. 
But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check out johnpielli.com. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, as we keep the program interactive. In the second hour, we're going to be speaking with former White Sox left-hand pitcher Jim Parquet and former Minnesota Twins catcher Tim Laudner. But to finish off my discussion about Kirby Higby, I tell you, one of the most difficult things to talk about, really at any level, is race. And it really doesn't matter what race you are, whether you're white, black, you know, Hispanic, whatever it is. Um, there's po- positive and negative connotations to everything you say. And you really do have to be careful with the words that you choose, because if somebody is not looking out for the best interest in what you say, it can be twisted in a negative way. And it's, uh, you know, unfortunate. And hopefully uh, everything that I said regarding this was the, the best descriptive way possible. And I tried to say it in an objective way, not to show any personal feelings involved in it. But I mean, you have to feel for for the African-American ball player. As obviously this is a baseball show, so this is not talking about uh, race as a topic, but for the ball players that were coming up at that time, and I've talked all the time about a couple of the guests that I've had on my show, whether it was Joe Durham, whether it was Ed Charles, and their experiences that, that and these experiences happened way after 1947, and how after Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier, there was still separation. And these players were still not allowed to travel with certain teams in the South. And I told you a story about Joe Durham, who had a very good minor league career and certainly was as good, if not better, than some of the outfielders that the Baltimore Orioles had. But he was held back. And Ed Charles, who spent nearly just about four full seasons in AAA, when he was certainly qualified to be an everyday major league infielder. He came up as a second baseman. He was moved to third base when Eddie Matthews was there. And here's a guy that uh, was one of the best players in the league or one of the best third basemen when he finally got his opportunity in 1962 to play in the major leagues for the Kansas City Athletics. And it's a shame that you look at some of the great careers that could have been. And not just with Joe Durham, who never got much of a chance to play in the major leagues, but even a guy like Ed Charles, who had about eight or nine solid seasons before hanging it up after the 1969 season. What happened if he got about three or four years in the major leagues prior to his debut? Because he was ready. And it's a shame to see how stuff like this worked out and worked against some of these players. And, you know, not, don't, not even getting into all the players that never got the spotlight and attention that they deserved. Uh, those of whom who had great careers in the Negro Leagues. But if baseball was integrated 20 years before, or hopefully 60 years before, when supposedly the last dark-skinned player was allowed to play in the major leagues. Now, let's understand something. Let's understand one thing about this. We're not talking about a uh, institutionalized ban on African-American players or dark-skinned players being allowed to play in the major leagues because something like that probably would not have been allowed to be said. This was a handshake agreement by all the owners and all the people involved in Major League Baseball, and that's an absolute disgrace. From times in the 1800s 
where it was totally okay and nobody noticed and nobody cared to all of a sudden the color of a man's skin was going to determine whether or not they were going to be allowed to play on your baseball team. Now, I thought, and maybe I'm wrong, but I thought that the skills and the ability of the player should be to the eyes of the beholder. Now, you should be able to watch a ball player play on the field and judge their skill set against that of anybody else. And what would you want? You'd probably want to see the most talented player on your team as opposed to taking the guy that happens to have the lighter skin. I don't know. I mean, am I crazy for saying that? I, I, I would want the better ball player because the better ball player would make my team better and would give my team a better chance to win. And that's something that Branch Rickey ended up looking out for, probably for his own interests, obviously. I mean, this was clearly a chance that Branch Rickey was taking, but what was he looking out for? He was looking out for the best interest of making money and having a successful baseball team. Having a successful team leads you to the better opportunity to make more money and have a more lucrative franchise. And what Branch Rickey was looking at is this depth of African-American baseball talent, whether it was in the Negro Leagues, whether it was in the college ranks, whether it was at back in the Sandlot. He knew that having a free pick, essentially, out of all these players and to take the best from the best and have them play on his team was going to give his team the best opportunity to win pennants. And that's what the Dodgers did. And, and teams like, you know, the Yankees and the Dodgers and the Giants, the three teams in New York, were all in competition with each other. Uh, certainly uh, the Dodgers, you know, up until that point, didn't have the success of the Yankees or even the New York Giants to that point. Of course, they did have the pennant in 1941, which I mentioned before. But you're looking at, a, at, a, at an owner that may not be as much of a hero as he's made out to be. And yes, he was the guy that allowed for the first African-American player to play in Major League Baseball. But he was doing it for his own interests, as opposed for doing it as part of a civil rights movement. And that's something that definitely needs to be known as well. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Big thanks to Val Pascucci for being part of the program this hour. Like I said, Jim Parquet, former left-hand pitcher for the Chicago White Sox, and Minnesota Twins catcher Tim Lautner will both be part of the program in hour number two. What we're going to do is we're going to take our standard five-minute break, and we'll be right back getting into a lot more stuff going on in Major League Baseball. And like I said, the set interviews that I just mentioned. John Pielli, Passball Show. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. We'll be right back in five minutes. Rock over London, rock on Chicago. American Airlines, we mean business in Chicago. 